Hello and welcome to the Holiday Moons Podcast, where we share our love for the holidays with you year-round. And we're continuing our summer series today. I'm Cole, and I'm going to be talking about Flag Day. This is Randy, and I will be talking about the birthplace of the American vacation. This is Beth, and I will be talking about that American drink Kool-Aid. <laughs> this is Sydney, and I will be talking about decorating with pineapples. All fun Very summer things to do. That's right. As always, we start off with our holiday happenings. I think in our last episode, we talked about Beth and I going to Disney in the upcoming week. Well, it has switched to just be me going to Disney for the week, so when we do that trip report... It'll be my experience this next week. I will be at Magic Kingdom for Memorial Day, so I'll be able to let you know how that was. And it's expected to be in the upper 90s all next week yes. at Disney. So, Fun. Randy can handle that heat. <laughs> I yes. can't. Does anyone else have any holiday happenings for the week? Yes. On my way back home today, I was the only one who did not get to have a day off today. <laughs> and this is a Friday. I saw Rolling Thunder going the opposite direction of me. It was a bunch of motorcycles going down 66 towards D.C. And there were a lot of them. And I think I even saw a police officer on a motorcycle leading them in the front. But he could have been turning his lights on to catch a car. I actually don't know. We talked about this in a previous podcast where um, tens of thousands of you know people on motorcycles go to D.C. to bring attention to POWs that need to continue to support the veterans along yes. the way. And this is actually the last year that Rolling Thunder is going to do this. And we've seen this. Oh. We, we're on the path for Rolling Thunder in our hometown. So we have seen this for many, many years on this weekend. But this is the last year that the Rolling Thunder group that organizes it has decided to do it just because they said they don't feel welcome in D.C. just because the sheer number of motorcycles there are it causes a lot of problems for the D.C. area so they've decided to to not continue that. So that's a little sad. But, on a different note <laughs> On a happier note <laughs> On a happier note. Like Cole said, we are continuing our summertime series this week. As part of that, we will be talking about Independence Day for the next couple weeks after this. So let's start off with our topics for the day. Awesome. Well, Independence Day Lots of flags going to be waving around. It's a very... So true. Uh, one thing that's very characteristically American is we like putting our flag everywhere and yes. anywhere that's on right. everything, which is awesome because everywhere you look around, you see it. And not just like the actual flag, but like the decorations have like the elements of the flag Right, the there. elements of the flag. Like, like pinwheels. Red, like white, blue... Stars, all those sorts of things are everything. Right, yeah. On everything. Which is funny because instead of open signs, a lot of places have like a tricolor red, white, and blue flag. Like flag that says open on it. Yep. Which is funny because that's just the Dutch flag that they have, <laughs> they have printed open on. But but it's those same colors. Yes. So, it's yeah, representing so. the United States. Right. But the actual Even though flag. it's an actual flag somewhere right. else. Yeah. Flag Day unofficially sort of starts back in 19th century. A school teacher from Wisconsin, Bernard J., I want to say it's Sigrand. Okay, you can say that. <laughs> oh, thank you. So he first held a formal observance of Flag Day at the Stony Hill School as a day to honor the American flag. 
Hmm. Which I think is an interesting, interesting thing to want to do. Because it's not honoring the, specifically the veterans or that or any of the people that's honoring the flag. By extension, you're honoring the people. Yeah, it's interesting. He just decided to do that. And right. And actually, people know that it was him that decided to do it as far as the history of this. Right. From the 1880s on, he spoke around the country promoting patriotism and respect for the flag. And he thought that there needed to be a day to honor the flag, an annual observance of... Uh, oh, okay, so he was known to be a right. flag observance guy. Uh, guy. A, a, yeah. promoter of, a promoter. Yeah. Yeah. And that late period is sort of when nationalism starts picking up. So... Flags are becoming much more important across Europe and the United States as well. But it wasn't until 1916 when President Woodrow Wilson had a proclamation that officially established the 14th of June as Flag Day. And then in 1946, it was established by an act of Congress to be the 14th of June because the 14th of June, 1777, was the day that the Continental Congress officially adopted the Stars and Stripes as the U.S. flag. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Which is interesting because the American flag is very unique. We don't see a lot of other flags like it. There's a lot of tricolor, but the stripes actually come from the East India Company flag. So the East India Company flag... Looked very similar to our flag, but with a Union Jack instead of the square in the corner with the stars. So that existed before. So that our predates flag. our flag. Now, did it have the same number of stripes? That I don't know, actually. Because the stripes are specific to the number of colonies, right? Mm-hmm. There's 13. So I wonder if it was exactly the same number or a little bit different. So, did you guys ever celebrate Flag Day or go to Flag Day parades or anything like that? Flag Day is during summer, right? Mm-hmm. You know, for most kids, at least you know, me growing up, we got out of school at the end of May. So, I'd say I was aware of Flag Day, but I don't remember any real celebrations or parades. Any, like, fun Flag Day mm-hmm. moments. I did just look up the East India Company's flag, and it does have 13 stripes on it, just like the U.S. flag does on it. I was wondering why, and what it said was that the number 13 is believed or considered to be a powerful number in Freemasonry, and a number of the shareholders at the time in the East India Company were Freemasons. Well, that's interesting, because Freemasonry was very big in the early United States, too. Right, a number of the founding fathers were Freemasons. So you kind of have both things working for you there. Yeah, Uh, that's right. uh, The 13 colonies, and also very big for the Freemasons. But to pick up on your original question for Sydney and Beth, do you guys remember anything about Flag Day from your childhood? Not specifically. I do remember reading a book about flags and kind of the different colors, what the different colors mean, what the different crests mean, and kind of breaking it down um, and going through the history. And um, in this particular book uh, that I was going through, I had got it for Cole to give, I think, as a birthday gift. Yeah, I remember that flag book. For the listener, I'm a big fan of flags and anthems and sort of the, the national symbols that develop over time. But I remember that was a very interesting book. For me, I don't really remember a lot about doing anything. If anything, it would have been 
in school. They may have done something at the end of the school year, but I don't remember other than that. Mm-hmm. I remember it being in elementary school in Ohio. At some point, they had us make the Ohio flag, which is basically, it's a pretty simple flag of red, white, blue, some stars. But the Ohio flag is so weird. It's like got the slant to it. Right. It's one of the like only non-rectangular yeah. flags yeah. in the world. But then I moved to Pennsylvania, and the Pennsylvania flag has this complex emblem, right? A seal, like a, what's it called? I think it's it's a seal. It has like a couple of horses and... Well, it's got this person in the middle, so... I remember as a kid also having to make the Pennsylvania flag, right? <laughs> and what they would do is give you the cutout of the thing in the middle. So that you, all you had to do was color it in. You didn't have to, like, free draw it. So that was kind of funny. Yeah, that is funny. Because a lot of states will have very complex crests, right, crests. on them. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of. I know Virginia is another one of those states that has a very complicated crest. A lot of them could not be national flags just by the way that uh, they're put together. Oh, yeah, and I just looked up the Pennsylvania flag because I was trying to remember, and you're right, it doesn't have a person. It's got horses on either side, and it's got the eagle on top, and a boat in the middle, and a plow. I mean, it's very complex. So yeah, it's got, like, three chiefs of grain. Yeah, and, it's got a yeah. lot going on there. Too much for a little kid to draw. <laughs> <laughs> but it is very similar to sort of old medieval crests, which a lot of flags started off as either colors or just a way to put your crest on something so that you could be identified. And a lot of that came from warfare and early medieval Europe. A lot of the flags did come from medieval Europe. Was there, like, history of why flags exist? Flags were a way to identify who was on the other side. Because different... Like from a distance. Di- right, different princes, different kings, different, you know, empires had different symbols and different colors that they identified themselves with. So if you were um, in ancient Rome, there were a lot of reds that the Romans would identify them with, which is different than if you were the Persians or the Armenians. So it was a way to identify an army on the other side. You didn't want to attack a potential allied army. So I guess there was some sense of integrity in that you didn't use the other person's flag. Well, I mean, not everybody did. <laughs> to <laughs> to like you could trick somebody pretty <laughs> right. easily. I'm not sure if they did do it, but that sounds like something the Mongols would yeah, do. Exactly, Mongols were yes. very tricky about the, yeah. the way they fought. I know we have horses, but we're not Mongols because <laughs> we have your flag. We've got your flag. <laughs> the Mongols very interesting. Their spy networks were one of the things that made them so successful. Early medieval flags were very complicated. They had a lot of... I guess you would say extra, like, flourish to them. A lot of decoration around the borders. Not easy to reproduce. So they were royal princely flags. So almost like complex borders around the edges? Right. I I see you got your phone. Look up the flag of the Republic of Venice. That's about as complicated as you can get. Because it has, like, a lion and all kinds of swirls and... Oh, wow, yeah, you're right. It's almost like a tapestry. (laughs) Right. And that's what a lot of early flags were, like, tapestries. But it was really the Dutch who came up with the first tricolor flag. And that was sort of the model that a lot of Europe... The red, white, blue one? Right. So, for those of you who don't know, the Dutch flag is three bars, three horizontal bars. The first one red, second one white, and third one blue. And that was adopted in 1575. So, the Dutch led the path for the more simple flags, 
And a lot of those flags were used in a naval context. So that's why a lot of those flags were much more simple and why a lot of the flags during the colonial period were referred to as colors because they were the colors of that nation, essentially. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, and I could see an advantage to having less complex flags because you would think you could produce more of them. You could produce a lot more and, of them. And display them in more places and things like that for your military or, or your town. Right. Right, and you could use them to show your intent in a military or a naval context. If you were not flying a flag, then that indicated hostile intent because you were not identifying yourself to other ships. You're trying to be sneaky. Right, you're trying to be <laughs> sneaky. But a lot of nations had a national flag and a naval flag, but a lot of them actually used the naval flag in non-naval context, in military context as well. With the rise of nationalism, a lot of those naval flags became national flags as well and started being used in civilian context. Okay. And the Dutch were very important because they used those red, white, and blue colors and they pioneered a lot of naval trade, a lot of naval expansion. But a lot of different kings and emperors went to the Netherlands and that was where they learned how to nation build. So okay. a lot of them modeled their flags after the Dutch. Which is one of the reasons that the red, white, and blue are the three most common colors in flags across the world. So they didn't just take the model, they literally took the colors. They literally took the colors. <laughs> I think one of the best examples is the Russians, when Peter the Great went to the Netherlands, because he really wanted to build a navy, he made the Russian flag white, blue, and red, modeled after the Dutch. Flags, very interesting history. A lot of non-European flags go back to old empires. A lot of early Islamic flags had writing from the Quran on them. But again, with the rise of nationalism, you had some very interesting flags popping up. But that's one of the reasons that a lot of the European flags are still very simple, is they all go back to that colors era. So thank you, Cole. That was fun. I'm sure there's a lot to share about flags. Yep, there's a, definitely a lot on your more interest. I, yep. <laughs> yes, lots of fun. So a couple episodes ago, I talked about the origin of vacations before the United States was a country. So kind of the Roman era and before that and then after that. Leading up to how did the U.S. adopt the idea of vacations, which we so associate with summertime. The time frame that I led up to in that episode was up to the Civil War in the United States. And that's really after the Civil War is when the idea, the concept of a vacation time for Americans kind of took birth. About 1869 through the 1870s is when the rise of the American vacation took place, which is pretty interesting. If you just look at what's happening in the one decade of 1870 to 1879, just past the, uh, the end of the Civil War and President Lincoln's assassination, mm -hmm. it was an incredible time of history that we all know these events, but I bet we don't realize they all happened within the same decade. So I'm going to list them off to you. I'm not going to give the dates, but just things that happened in the 1870s. This is when the buffalo hunters began to move in the plains in order to um, kill off the buffaloes in order to make way for the railroads. That was in the 1870s. This is when... The Luck of the Roaring Camp and other sketches was written based on stories from a San Francisco journalist, 
which are often the origin of the uncouth frontier characters that became stereotypes of the American West. So your Davy Crockett's kind of... Yeah. yeah, and like your kooky cook, older kind of Western cook kind of guy and things like that. This is when Mark Twain published Roughing It, which was a humorous account of his adventures in the West. This is when cable cars were introduced in San Francisco. General George Armstrong Custer announces the discovery of gold in the Black Hills, setting off a stampede of fortune hunters. The Pinkerton agents firebomb the James family, so Jesse James family farm in Missouri, in an attempt to catch the notorious outlaws. Deadwood, soon to be one of the wildest towns of the West, springs into existence. Oh, that's interesting. That's a, a town I actually yeah. Yeah, I've heard of before. Standard Oil Company is incorporated by John D. Rockefeller. The National Weather Service makes its first official meteorological forecast. Meteorological. Makes its first official weather forecast. High winds at Chicago and Milwaukee and along the lakes. The first professional baseball league debuts. The Chicago Fire starts from a legendary kick by Mrs. O'Leary's cow. A New York mayor, Boss Tweed, is arrested. The New York Metropolitan Museum of Arts opened. The world's first national park is established, and it's the Yellowstone National Park in Wyoming, Montana, and Idaho. And which president helped to establish it? President Grant. That's right. Susan B. Anthony a woman suffragette, illegally casts a ballot in Rochester, New York. The first United States Zoo opens up. The first Kentucky Derby is run. The Philadelphia Centennial exhibit celebrating 100 years of the United States opens up, publicly showing the top portion of the Statue of Liberty for the first time. The first commercial telephone exchange is open. Thomas Edison patents the cylinder phonograph, and the Edison Electric Company begins operation. And the last one I'll mention here is that the first five and dime store opens up in New York by Frank W. Woolworth. Now, I could be wrong, but I think it was in the 1870s that we were fighting the Sioux War. Yes, yeah, there was yeah, a number that, of Native American activities and movements. Because I think the Sioux War was the last big Native war that we fought as the United States. Yes, and there's a lot of things that happened right in that time frame in the 1870s. Mm-hmm. You know, America ex- tried to expand into now all the way west, the south now recovering from the Civil War. It sounds like there's a lot of like frontier culture going yeah. on. But, but on the east coast, a lot of the industrialization that happened during the Civil War is really continuing to ramp up, except now in peacetime. So it's really a very interesting time. In the country, and one of the other things that happens during that time frame is this concept of a vacation. So, in the spring of 1869, there was a handsome young preacher from Boston named William H. H. Murray. So he's handsome. We know that. He's, yes, yes. <laughs> it's referenced as he is handsome. Is this, he's is this going like down in history <laughs> because handsome by 1870 standards? <laughs> yes, definitely 1869 standards. But he is referenced in the news reports as the handsome young preacher. Okay. So he published one of the first guidebooks to a wilderness in the United States. And what he was describing was the Adirondack Mountains, which is a 9,000 square mile expanse of lakes, forests, rivers in upstate New York. So if you look at it... Funnily enough, no mountains. Well, very few mountains. Kind of hills, rolling hills. So if you look at it, it's about 
three and a half hours north of New York City is what you think about it. I've always heard of the Adirondacks, but I wasn't sure exactly. Is it where more? It was. Uh, is it further west than straight up north? Straight up north. So yeah. that was the wilderness. That was the wilderness. Yeah, three and a half hours straight up north. So Murray, in his guidebook, broached the outrageous idea that an excursion into raw nature could actually be pleasurable. So before that day, <laughs> before that day, most Americans considered the country's primeval landscapes only as obstacles to be conquered. So you think oh. about it, a very different concept from the entire nation building that we've been doing, where it's yeah. constantly a frontier right on your back door that you have to conquer, at least from the American. Well, I mean, that's kind of the manifest destiny right. kind of, yeah. And idea. I would say that kind of also sounds, because it did say he was young, almost a change in generational thinking. Yes, exactly right. right. So he wrote the book Adventures in the Wilderness, or Camp Life in the Adirondacks, where he talked about hiking, canoeing, fishing, in the unsullied nature, where this would be the ultimate health tonic for the busy city dweller whose constitutions were weakened by the demands of civilized life. Wow, that's quite a mouthful. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so this kind of notion seemed to hit a chord with Americans and Americans in cities during that time frame. And it actually became a surprise bestseller. He argued in the book that American cities were disease-ridden and filled with pressures that created an intense, unnatural, and often fatal tension to the people living there. The wilderness, on the other hand, restored both spirit and body. To quote him, he says, No axe has sounded along its mountainsides or echoed across its peaceful waters. So the spruce, hemlock, balsam, and pine yield upon the air, especially at night, all their curative qualities. This is a ride to me, so... Driving time, about three and a half hours for us, right? Okay. Murray pointed out that there was a new train line that had opened the year before, which meant this magical world was only 36 hours travel from New York City or Boston. Oh my gosh. And again, this is before <laughs> cell phones and any, like, anything to distract Honestly, your kids. That's not bad, though. 36 <laughs> hours. Like, compared to what it would be well, without a train, yeah. without a rail well, line. In a later... Article I was reading, it did talk about yes, there was a rail that took you up there, but then he had to get onto a stagecoach and ride into the woods. So Otherwise, it was another long set of hours. Oh my god. Otherwise it wasn't a wilderness. Right, exactly. Right. Yeah, they didn't pull up next to the wilderness and say, Adirondacks here and right. go in. So interestingly, he publishes that and it becomes a bestseller. So the first summer of sixty-nine, the Adirondacks were just inundated with Adventurous, each with their copy of Murray's volume, <laughs> which which included a tourist edition, which was in a waterproof yellow binding with fold-out train schedules and a map. That's hilarious. So there's this influx that was dubbed Murray's Rush by the press. There was a human stampede, wrote one historian, with a florid turn of phrase that Murray would have appreciated, like hungry trout. On a mayfly feeding frenzy. <laughs> but that first summer was also one of the wettest and coldest summers in Adirondack history. Ensuring that the region was not quite the idyllic picture that Murray had depicted. And on top of that, this is the first time anyone's really done this. Most of his followers that arrived were woefully unprepared. Even though in his book he had given them a lot of information about how to prepare for hiking, camping. They just, and those sort of, they just basically didn't follow it. 
And it's so funny because they have like snippets from different news reports. They talked about the Gilded Age city slickers got lost only a few yards from their camps. <laughs> they overturned their canoes and became terrified by deer or bear tracks. <laughs> and on top of that, because of the cold and wetness and a late winter, it meant that the black flies uh, persisted well into August. And these are those biting black flies. <laughs> so you had a summer of cold, wet, <laughs> biting black flies and a bunch of people that don't know what they're doing. In addition to the clouds of mosquitoes. Clouds wow. of mosquitoes. So. Wow. Now, Murray didn't own any of this land, no. did he? No, he, he just, just loved it. He just, just loved the area. Go to it. Yeah. Well, no, he told them how to do it, and they didn't do any of it. The Adirondacks were this, like, innocent little area. People lived there, yeah. and they're like, oh, my goodness. So there was a few inns. They were completely overwhelmed with people. One hotel became so crowded that the owner charged by the hour for guests to sleep on a pool table. That is hilarious. <laughs> but no one wanted to sleep outside because of the fl- biting flies and mosquitoes. Right. <laughs> and, and the terrifying deer traps. <laughs> That's right. right. What are those things? <laughs> And locals with no experience at all in guiding hired themselves out as guides, (laughs) adding to the chaos by leading their groups astray and camping in dismal swamps. (laughs) So, obviously, the press had a field day with this, and the author was denounced by the angry readers for exaggerating the charms of outdoor life. So he actually publicly defended himself against all these attacks by the press and had this long, what he called, reply to his calumniators. Illuminators, basically the people that were out against him. And he pointed out that he could hardly be responsible for the dreary weather, including rains that were tenfold thicker than was ever known. <laughs> and the first time campers hadn't heeded his tips in arriving in the wilderness, instead they were dressed for a promenade along Broadway or a day's picnic. And he still predicted that the Adirondacks would become America's great summer resort, that the hotels would multiply, the cottages would be built along the shores of the lake, and then white tents would pile up. And, of course, as we know, he was right. The outrage from the first summer did not dent the growing popularity of the Adirondacks. So when the season of 1870 arrived, it was balmy and clear, and the region surged ahead as the country's democratic playground, meaning a place where anybody could go for practically free, other than the trip, Mm. and enjoy themselves. So now Murray was a wealthy celebrity author, (laughs) and he mixed his religious duties in with lecture tours up and down the Northeast, talking about and promoting the idea of the Adirondacks and a vacation to some places. He made more than 500 appearances to an estimated half a million Americans in the next three years. Wow. Which is a lot of people in the country during those years. So the Adirondacks were soon booming as America's first vacation Area And by 1875, some 200 hotels and camps were operating in the mountains. So they did have mountains. And a new stagecoach service rattling from the train stations and steamboats plying the lake. So a lot more transportation available. By 1900, a few decades later, the summer population had risen to around 25,000, up from 3,000 that first year. I still can't imagine 3,000 people going to this area... And those people weren't expecting 3,000 people. <laughs> they just kind of showed up out of nowhere, and suddenly they were there, and they needed... That's what, that reminds me of uh, what you were talking about earlier, when the medieval kings would go to Philadelphia yeah, with all their right. servants and overrun the, yeah, that's right. like the little houses there. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Quickly, though, 
although we talked about this being a place that anybody could go, it soon became also filled with the wealthier of the United States, the Vanderbilts, the Rockefellers, Carnegie's, the Huntingtons, and other fabulously wealthy industrialists who built their own special great camps where they could bring their families in private luxury. So the American vacation was born in that time frame. And the elite of New York City took to declaring that they would vacate their city homes for their lakeside summer retreats. And the term vacation replaced the British holiday in our common phrases today. Oh, because of the the vacate? Yeah, that's exactly right. That's interesting. I think vacation for us is like, you know, going somewhere to vacate, just like Cole said. Going somewhere else for a while, but... You know, it's fun to hear people say, oh, I have a beach house, oh, I have a lake house, you know, because yeah, that, that's it, their own private. Yeah, it has origins way back in the Adirondacks as well, right? Because right. that's what happened around that lake. And within a day's drive for 60 million people, right, now lies this vast, today even, lies this vast swath of wilderness, which includes 3,000 lakes, which is now part of the protected Adirondack Park. By the way, which is a sprawling 6.1 million acres, which is larger than Yellowstone, Yosemite, and Glacier National Parks combined. Wow. I had no idea. Yeah. <laughs> that is crazy. That was crazy. just this little area and, you know. Right. Yeah, I would, not have, uh, I would yeah. not have guessed that. So that's the origins. Now, there's a number of other places that popped up um, around the country in Denver, on the West Coast as well, that became resorts, kind of areas in nature along the way. But that was one that... It was closer to where we are, but had a significant impact on the direction of vacations in the United States. Well, thanks, Randy. That was a lot of interesting information about vacations. You're welcome. When I was growing up, my mom would take my brothers and I to a local state park. We lived in central Pennsylvania. It was called Reed's Gap State Park. And we would go during the weekdays. And they had a pool there. So sometimes just our family would go, our nuclear family. And sometimes we would meet cousins, aunts, uncles, grandparents there also. That sounds fun. It was very fun, yes. Lots of childhood memories there. One of the things she would do often is make a pitcher of Kool-Aid... (laughs) and peanut butter sandwiches. (laughs) Yum. And we would go out for the day. If we were meeting aunts, uncles, cousins, that kind of thing, it was usually a picnic kind of thing. But if it was just my brothers, my mom and I, it would be the Kool-Aid and the peanut butter sandwiches and a blanket and, you know, just kind of camp out there for the day and enjoy the park and enjoy swimming. So Kool-Aid was a big part of my years growing up. I think of it very much as a summertime drink. So I thought, you know, it would be fun for me and for the listener to find out more about Kool-Aid and how it came about. It does sound fun and interesting because I remember growing up with Kool-Aid as well. Yeah, yeah, it was a great product. And the Kool-Aid man. And the Kool-Aid man, yeah, that's right, that's right. (laughs) So Kool-Aid was a popular powdered drink developed by Edwin Perkins in Hastings, Nebraska, In fact, there's a permanent exhibition of Kool-Aid history in the Hastings Museum of Natural and Cultural History, so they have embraced it. As a boy working in his family's general store, Edwin Perkins became interested in a new powdered dessert mix named Jell-O, 
and persuaded his father to carry it in the store. Perkins also became interested in selling products directly to customers rather than from behind a counter. Later, as a young man, he manufactured and sold products, creating printing labels and advertising material on his own printing press. Eventually, he set up a mail-order business called the Perkins Products Company. In the 1920s, the Perkins Company made many different products sold through mail order. They had over 125 household products, including face creams, lotions, soaps, spices, and food flavorings. In 1920, Perkins came out with a product called Fruit Smack, which makes me laugh. (laughs) Fruit Smack. Fruit Smack, yes. (laughs) What year was that? 1920. Okay. <laughs> and it was a flavored syrup concentrate, which came in six flavors. The consumer could mix the syrup with water to make a sweet fruit-flavored drink. Although the product was popular, the syrup had to be shipped to customers in corked glass bottles. The bottles were prone to cracking and leaking during shipping, causing customers to return them for a refund. As well, the bottles were heavy and costly to ship. So it's almost like it was a syrup that already had the sweetness mixed in with it. And it sounds like the return on investment was askew with the glass bottles. That's interesting. Right. right. It cost too much to move the product, product to right. be as profitable as you want from right. something like this. Especially if it was mail order. Well, especially if you had a return policy. Right. <laughs> and apparently Perkins did. Yeah. They were a very nice family. So inspired by Jell-O and their powdered gelatin... Perkins decided to come up with a concentrated powder version of his fruit drink, which again was named Fruit Smack, which makes me laugh, which could be shipped in paper packets, solving all the shipping problems. So this was in 1920, he came out with his Fruit Smack. It took him until 1927 to come up with a powdered product, and Kool-Aid was born. He initially called it Kool-Aid, K-O-O-L-A-D-E. It came in six flavors. Cherry, which was Edwin Perkins' favorite. Oh, so like lemonade. What do you mean? A-D-E. Oh, yeah, yeah. Kool-Aid. Right. Like, yeah, you're right. Like lemonade. So it came in six flavors. Cherry was Edwin Perkins' favorite. Grape, lemon, lime, orange, and raspberry, and strawberry. Eventually, the name was changed to Kool-Aid, K-O-O-L-A-I-D, which is interesting, too. There were some problems coming up with the perfect packaging for the powder, but he eventually went with something similar to Jell-O, a colored paper envelope with a waxed lining. He sold the packets through the mail for 10 cents apiece, and all the customers had to do was mix the powder with sugar and water. Perkins then became determined to see the product sold in grocery stores rather than only by mail, which he accomplished, and Kool-Aid was sold throughout the U.S. by 1929. So within a nine-year time frame, he invented it, came up with a way to get it to the consumer through mail order, and then got it also into grocery stores across the United States. By 1931, the company had discontinued all its other products and concentrated on Kool-Aid. The price of a Kool-Aid packet was lowered to a nickel during the Depression, and then during World War II, sales dropped due to the rationing of sugar. But after the war, Kool-Aid hit its stride, and by 1950, 
323 million packets a year were being sold. Oh my wow. heavens. So for some reference, when it first came out, I'm going to say 1927 or 1920. so? 1920. 1920. But yeah. the powder... The powder was developed in 1927. All right. So when it was selling for 10 cents with inflation... That's about a buck fifty. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And that was right before the Great Depression, right? So yep. right when people had wealth. He got it right before the crash, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And then as Peggy said, he, he lowered the price during the Great Depression. But it's still a very economical drink. Right. And it was marketed as a luxury drink for kids that people could afford. Yeah. Perkins sold the company to General Foods in 1953 which added more flavors like root beer and lemonade in 1955. The first pre-sweetened Kool-Aid was marketed in 1964. And in 1988, General Foods merged with Kraft Foods and new products were introduced like Kool-Aid slushies and ready-to-drink Kool-Aid splash, which is funny because it started out in liquid form and then went to powdered and then eventually came back to a liquid form. When I was looking it up, I found that it now comes in 91 flavors. Wow. Which is quite a difference from the original six. And I have to say, you know, even though it came up with all those flavors and the new, you know, things coming out, it still hasn't deviated much from the original. Yeah. Right? You think that they scrapped everything and they they just concentrated on Kool-Aid. Kool-Aid is still Kool-Aid. Well, it's still powder like most of it that i see in stores but now a lot of it comes to those little tubs yeah you You can still buy the individual packets it does Mm. there are two ways to purchase the kool-aid now some of it is the envelope the little envelope packets and the other way is the tub that's right but a lot even a lot of the little envelopes come in packs of envelopes yeah Yeah. (laughs) and then i always have fun memories of all the kool-aid ads yes and the fun kool-aid man yeah Yeah. Yeah. that reminds me of this That was a... That was a little compilation of... Of the Kool-Aid man breaking through the wall, which was iconic. That was the big thing for him. Yeah, the, oh yeah. And he would break through thirst, is what he was doing. Right. Thirst on the run. That's right. (laughs) And it was a big picture. Yes. Usually, Usually it was red. Yes. It was the cherry. Yes. I think yeah. it was always I think it red. was always red. Yeah. yeah. And, and it had the face on it. Yeah, the smiley face. face. And it got a little more cgi in the later years. Yeah. Right? That's, That's fairly yeah. recent. With, with yes. the mouth being able to right. move. And right. Stuff. That's exactly yeah. right. And I remember as a kid, you could save these little pieces of the envelopes, little packets. And if you got enough of those... You could send them in to get like a Kool-Aid shirt or a Kool-Aid hat. That's hilarious. You know, some, and that was really big when I was a kid was if you purchase these on, on like cereal boxes, Kool-Aid, like just lots of different things, kid-focused advertisement, keep purchasing it as because you can save this little this little piece of the packaging. And if you get enough of those, you can get something for it. So I know, you know, youngest of six kids, Kool-Aid was a huge part of my life growing up. So that was fun. Fun yeah. memories. It is. I think a lot of people have a lot of good summertime 
Kool-Aid memories. Right. Because it is sort of a summertime associated with a vacation if you're going out to a beach house or something right. like that. Maybe not for us because our vacations are usually to one place. Right, to Disney We've World. gone to many places vacationing. But Disney most often. <laughs> but yeah. am, I, am I wrong? Yes, no, you're not wrong. When I was reading this, from the 60s to the late 80s was like, it's heyday. It was yeah. like the big time for this kind of product to be in all the homes. Although it still exists and it's still popular. With the CGI Kool-Aid Man now. That's right. Yep. Why, thank you, Mom. Another fun summer, I guess, item are pineapples. The pineapple became a symbol of welcome and hospitality in the European countries. And recent, not even recently, but over the past five years, I have really liked to use pineapples during the summertime to decorate my office. So I am in human resources. So oftentimes people would come to my office to ask questions on different topics. So I am one who loves to decorate. That was inherited. And you guys have certainly grown (laughs) that interest in me as well as I have grown up. And I love to decorate my office and make it feel welcoming to others during holidays. However, when the holidays have passed and it's the summer months, I like to decorate with pineapples. Again, kind of going back to the welcome and hospitality part of it. Pineapples are yellow, they're sunny, they're bright, and I just have a few little fun crafts. And I think that pineapples for summertime is a relatively recent phenomenon across the United States. I think there's been a little pocket yeah. of it. Well, over the last decade or so, I think it's that... It's gotten more and more mm-hmm. popular. And now, you know, places like Target and Michael's, Hobby Lobby, it's more like a another significant item, yes. seasonal item, like the other seasonal like items Like an icon. Are. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think pineapples were especially popular a few years ago. They still have a bunch of pineapple stuff Mm-hmm. Right now, but I think llamas are a big thing. I've seen been <laughs> seeing funny. llamas yeah. everywhere. No, I think I think you're right. Yeah, because I think sloths were a big yes. thing uh, like a couple years ago, and now it's mm-hmm. llamas. So yeah, they always have some kind of thing going on. And I think pineapples are neat um, because they're sort of a happy kind of thing. Like it's yellow; it's a, kind of a soft color. Yeah, but it also makes people think of the tropics when oh, they yeah. see it so mm-hmm. which is a very calming kind of vision in your head and it was interesting yeah. that when we went to hawaii mm-hmm. we got to visit a plantation where one of the things they grew were pineapples it's interesting to see them growing out of the ground they weren't from trees they were actually mm-hmm. roots yes. i know that we was like, so eye-opening what? <laughs> yeah but <laughs> apples never... come from trees yeah, right <laughs> i guess we never thought about it and yeah. just yeah that was very interesting and the pineapple is sweet and juicy and tasty, too. Oh, my goodness. Yes. It is pineapple. so good, yeah. Yes, it's very healthy, too. Yes. Like incredibly but healthy. For a long time, the pineapple has been a symbol of hospitality. I think it right. did get a lot of press. <laughs> yes. Yeah, a lot um, more popularity. Right, as the years went on. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Especially in the U.S. Right. Yes. Absolutely. So I've done a few crafts to decorate my office. Well, I say crafts, right? So when I say crafts, what I mean is... I personally made them, but they are meant as decorations for my office. Right. Mm. Right. The first decoration that I made that I'm going to talk about is this pineapple pot. A pot apple. A pot apple. What I did was I bought this model magic clay, which can be air dried. It's yellow. And I got this itty bitty tiny pot. Regular clay pot that you put plants in right 
and I molded the clay around this pot and let it dry or mostly dry. I didn't let it dry completely so I think that's why it had some of the problem that it did. <laughs> but I have this cute little succulent in it and it is green and it doesn't like <laughs> it looks like the pineapple top. It looks like the pineapple top. Yeah. Yeah. That's so funny like if you hold it, it up right in front of your Yeah, it does. Yeah, it looks yeah. <laughs> I didn't put the plant in right away. I sort of let the clay dry for a bit. Then I have a multi-surface premium oil-based paint pen. It's black. <laughs> that's quite... That's quite the mouthful. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's a thing. little pen. <laughs> for a little pen, yeah. Yeah. But basically, it's paint. And I drew these Vs all around the pineapple to make it look pineapple-y. All yeah. around the, the yellow dried, The dried yeah. clay, yeah. And so I put the succulent in and I realized that it kind of looked dry and in need of water, right? So I went ahead and watered it. What I noticed was the clay doesn't do so well. And there's some clay on the bottom. The clay um, absorbs the water, so it's harder to dry. It took much longer for the bottom to dry. In fact, it's still not completely almost dry definitely succulents are probably a good idea because you don't have to water them much exactly you don't want to put something that needs a lot of water mm-hmm. in one of these little exactly little model clay uh, so my plan pops. is to bring that to work and i have a bunch of pineapples at work this is my first live anything at work with a little succulent so we'll see how that goes succulents in general i mean you can look it up online but they don't need a lot of water they're meant for more desert-type environments. But anyway, so that was interesting. That was fun. It's very easy to make. The second thing that I did, I bought yellow felt and I bought green felt at Michael's. I cut them out into squares and I printed, then cut out a little pineapple from the internet. And I used them as a template to cut out shapes from the felt. So I cut out this oval shape for the base of the pineapple because I'm planning to make pineapples out of these. And then I made little fur toppings out of the green felt. It's the top of the pineapple. Exactly. Little leaves up there, yeah. So what I'm planning to do is put the yellow felt connected to the base of the green felt. Just to note, um, I also cut a little flat surface on the oval to make it the top. And I will connect that with the green felt then. Yeah, and you'll have to post pictures of these on yes. Holiday Moons because they're very fun to see in person. Yeah, and I'm much more of a visual person, so it's kind of hard to describe sometimes what I did. But basically, also, I got a brown Sharpie and I made these little marks on the yellow felt. It's totally up to you. You can make the V marks that I did on the pot. I did like little stitch markings on the yellow felt. I really like what you lines. did with the stitch marking. I like yeah. it because it's. I thought it was more um, unique. I cut out 10 of the yellow ovals and 10 of the little green tufts. So I'm thinking about connecting them. I haven't completely finished this craft myself, but I am thinking about connecting them with maybe like brown or white twine threading. And the idea is also to cut out two little slits at the top of the yellow felt and to slip a nice piece of twine through it mm-hmm. almost like a streamer what am i thinking of banner like a ban- yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. with the pineapples across them yeah they're all cute yeah so i'll hang that around my um cubicle at work 
And this says it, I was looking at um, what exactly it's called. Like it, they say cording, jute. I mean, you, you can right. decide what the thickness of it. Mine isn't too thick or too thin. It's um, just right. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll decorate my office with these pineapples. Usually people at work really like how I decorate my office and it's really fun. Very festive. It's funny. If you hear this little chirping sound, I'm not sure if you can hear it on the podcast or not. It's a little bird right outside right the window. Right outside the window. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, what is that sound? It's kind of like a little... Yeah. yeah. Kind of like a little trilling kind yeah. of noise. Fun summertime topics today. Next week, we will do some Independence Day topics. To close out our episode for today, we end with future festivities. June 17th is Eat Your Vegetables Day. June 18th, National Splurge Day. June 19th is Juneteenth. June 20th is National Bald Eagle Day. June 21st is finally Summer Day, which is the summer solstice, so that's the beginning of summer. June 22nd is National Chocolate Eclair Day. June 23rd is National Pink Day. As always, you can find us on social media at Twitter at Holiday underscore Moons, on Instagram at Holiday Moons. On Facebook, you can find us by searching for Holiday Moons, either the page or the group. And you can contact us by using holidaymoons at gmail.com. So for Cole, Randy, Beth, and Sydney, happy happy summer. summer!